Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is Dr. Sonia Theron, who's a lecturer at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. So you just published a book, Leadership, Nation Building, War in Sudan in conjunction with the uh, African Leadership Center. Uh, Sonia, it must have been an interesting exercise for you because that was part of your uh, PhD work. How really difficult was it in trying to put things together because South Sudan is, very, is in a very chaotic situation? Um, it, it was quite difficult. Um, I think in terms of understanding the complexities um, of uh, the South Sudanese situation, um, society, conflict and war. And it required me to really, as I continued investigating it and researching it, um, I found that I had to keep going back um, to history, um, going back in time further to just get a better and fuller and more holistic understanding of the situation. And that's why my book really covers um, sort of the breadth of South Sudan's history from early history, pre-colonial history, until um, the recent uh, uh, peace agreement, not the, the current peace agreement, the peace agreement that was signed in um, yeah. about 2015. Um, so it was it was certainly a difficult exercise, um, but I think one that was well worth it um, and one that I, I hope I, I, I did justice to. Yeah, because I mean, the thrust really of, of the book is that uh, is the role of leadership um, in, in South Sudan. I mean, have the leaders failed actually? Because to be honest, all along, they knew they were going to be independent. Were they prepared for independence eventually in 2011? Um, I think, uh, to put it simply, no, they were not. Um, obviously, I think there's some degree of having to manage expectations. Uh, you know, this was a society that had been in war for half a century, uh, the better part of half a century, um, that had been neglected by uh, the colonial regime and then the, the Sudanese um, government. So, Certainly, they were they were not prepared, and there was a, a certain degree of having to manage expectations. But I also do believe, um, from my analysis, that there was most definitely a challenge in the leadership process in in the ways in which priorities were set um, after two thousand five, after the the peace agreement with um, uh, the Sudanese government and the SPLMA, um, that the priorities really shifted during that period towards the the needs and interests of the elites in terms mm. of setting up the political configuration of the society um, mm. for their specific needs, rather than focusing on the social, economic, and political configuration that would suit the needs of the people. As you said in, in the book, the conflict is often uh, written off as an elite-driven situation. But that's really the case, isn't it? It was the elites really that uh, were fighting each other and creating problems for ordinary South Sudanese. So in, in a way it is, uh, but I challenge the idea that it is a issue of elites and an issue of personalities. 
because if you see many of the drivers of the ongoing conflict, you see that those same drivers um, were driving conflict prior to the current personality, Salva Kiir and Rick Nishar. Um, it was there during Garang's uh, leadership. Um, prior to that, even during the interim period between the two wars. So I, I challenge the idea that it is purely a matter of competing elite interests, um, because if that were the case, uh, why do people pick up guns and fight? Why is there mm -hmm. continued violence, even though the elites have for the moment um, re reached some sort of agreement? Uh, there are deep structural uh, issues that are driving a variety of grievances in the society that, that are pushing um, these issues and uh, allowing the conflict to arise. So for me, it's not so much that it's an elite-driven conflict, but it is a conflict that is driven by a disconnect between the elites of the society who have power and the people of the society whose interests and needs are quite different from that of the elites. Yes, but uh, what part do you, does ethnicity play in confusion in South Sudan? I mean, we have this problem all over the continent anyway. So for me, the, the role that ethnicity plays um, falls into that gap, that, that, that disconnect between the leaders and the people in the sense that when you have a leadership that lacks legitimacy um, yes. based on their expertise, um, based on uh, their legitimate position, um, but the, they tend to then try to gain power through coercion, um, through rewarding people or through appealing to identity, because that is a quick and easy way to gain support. So what happens is that when there is an elite challenge or um, conflict of interests, you then have those elites trying to gain support by fueling ethnic um, ethnic identities and ethnic narratives um, that are at the local level. Those ethnic narr narratives are quite different from the narratives and experiences of the elites. Um, you know, at the local level, identity and ethnicity is the social fabric of society. It, it is what allows um, these communities to continue. Many of the people are protected by not the state, not the leaders, but by their ethnic communities. Um, the social safety nets are given by ethnic communities. So when leaders are using that as a very quick and easy way to get, gather support because they lack legitimacy, it feeds into a deeply rooted um, and, and strongly felt sense of identity, which obviously then, um, when mixed with issues of violence and conflict, is, is really just a very dangerous recipe. Yes, but couldn't these leaders have learned from the experiences all over Africa? I mean, all the conflicts we've had on the continent are really based on ethnicity. Couldn't they have I mean, worked out a situation whereby they reached that stage in South Sudan? Um, well, they could have. Uh, they could have if the primary driver of their actions yes. was the interests of the society as a whole. Um, but what we see, and this is not specific to any one leader, uh, we see this across uh, times and parties, um, we see that leader interests, because the lived experiences and the needs and the interests of the elite in South Sudan are so different from the lived experience and needs of the people in South Sudan, um, they there was no other way um, that they could really 
could gather support from the people because there was just such such a large gap. Um, and at the end of the day, the, um, in, in a, trying to achieve their interests and needs, um, the leaders often left the needs of the society um, along the road when those interests were no longer in line with each other. Yes, in fact, leadership is really a major problem, isn't it, in, in, uh, in South Sudan? I mean, do they have competent leaders? Do they have competent professionals who can manage institutions and manage the, uh, the, the challenge of nation building? Are there competent leaders in the society? I think absolutely. Um, the, the question is what, um, what is considered competent? And um, I think that the bigger question is how are how do leaders emerge in the political sphere um, in, in the South Sudanese society? Um, you know, leaders emerge at the local level, um, in, in the religious societies, um, through other forms. In the political level, they emerge um, by uh, rebelling. Um, so, so that they can be co-opted into government. Uh, they emerge uh, based on their connections with the, um, the international actors. Um, and this is throughout, you know, during the independence struggle as well. You know, um, a lot of Garam's legitimacy while some of it came from the people of South Sudan, a lot of it came from the international community as well. Um, so whether there are, are competent leaders, um, there certainly are, but the question is how do you get those competent leaders into those positions in a society where leaders emerge based on their ability to access tools to coerce people or yes. reward people um, or based on, on their connections? Well, um, that's a very good point because when, uh... I used to speak to South Sudanese uh, diplomats who were working at the Sudanese embassy. I asked them, have you got competent managers, people who can run the whole show? They said, oh, well, yes, we've got a huge uh, South Sudanese diaspora in the States and in Europe. They're all competent. They'll come back and run the new country. Some of them went back, but disillusioned. I mean, did you find that when you, you got there, that uh, those who went to help were not expecting the sort of situation that they found in South Sudan. I think absolutely. Um, you know, and the diaspora community is another very important um, component of the South Sudanese experience, um, where there has always been, I think, amongst a lot of the diaspora, a sense of responsibility to go back and rebuild. Um, but when I think many of them did that, they found a, a very complicated situation. Um, so, so many of them went back and rebuilt within their their local communities, um, within their specific, um, you know, hometowns um, and and regions. But when it came to accessing the the political sphere, really that was driven primarily on your your role in the independence movement. Um, you know, being already part of the, the ruling party. Um, and the, and there, there was, um, throughout the independence struggle, a sort of distrust of people who had left the country. Um, so I think, um, and, and I speak without having uh, spoken with that much of the diaspora because that was not the focus of my research, um, I don't believe it would have been as simple as coming back and entering a position. Uh, the politics of how you enter a position are um, absolutely very complicated. I mean, that's an interesting point because uh, what about the, uh, since you're from South Africa, did the ANC find itself in, in, in the position that uh, the SPLM has found itself after hmm. the end of apartheid? Because I mean, it's the same thing. There were a lot of South Africans who were in exile and there were others who were 
South Africa continues to struggle. I mean, is that similar to the reaction in, in South mm -hmm. Sudan to those in exile? Um, to, no, I don't believe it's quite the same um, because where, where the ANC's exiled members uh, remained um, intrinsically part of the ANC. They remained a, a key component um, of the ANC and they were driving um, the struggle process overseas and they played a key role. As far as I'm aware, there wasn't that strong um, use of, of exiled South Sudanese um, uh, overseas uh, to, yes. in the SPLMA process. Um, obviously, there were, was to some degree, um, you know, that is how support from the United States was brought about in those things. But if you look at particularly the, the first independence movement, um, that was actually one of the sources of uh, some factionalism between uh, the political movement and the armed movement is yes. where the where the armed movement was sort of saying, well, the, the, the political movement made up predominantly of exiles. Um, didn't really understand what the struggle was like on the ground. So yeah. where I think the ANC was quite unified in terms of the exiled and the people um, on the ground, that was not quite the case that I've seen um, throughout all of, of South Sudan's independence process. Yes, I think those who left South Sudan were not really part of the uh, any organization, political or, or military. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's different from South Africa. Yeah, I, I see your point. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, so th they just left on their own, the, the South Sudanese who uh, are in exile. Was that the case? Um, obviously, obviously, um, it 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 depends. Uh, there are those who who left to train and then come back. There are there are those who left and did did advocate for the South Sudanese cause overseas. Um, there are those within the SPLMA who, who fought within the the region um, and then went overseas to train um, and come back. So. I think you find a mixture of it, um, but the core of the SPLMA independence movement remained housed and based within South Sudan, obviously with you know the support in Ethiopia and those places. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Sonia Teron, who is a lecturer at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. She has just written a book, Leadership, Nation Building, and War in South Sudan, uh, published by Bloomsbury in association with the African Leadership Center. Throughout the interview, you've mentioned the, uh, the influence of external uh, powers. Uh, how has that played out in an independent South Sudan? I mean, South Sudan got the bulk of, the, uh, of Sudan's oil wealth. So I'm sure a lot of uh, Western interest will be there to ensure that the uh, capture this oil well. So, I mean, how has that played out in South Sudan, the ex external uh, influence? Uh, so, unfortunately, uh, my findings and my assessment is that it has had, um, while in certain circumstances, the international community has played a central role when it comes to things like, um, you know, attempting to protect civilians during the 2013 uh, uh, civil war and efforts at mediation. I think I think absolutely there has been some really valuable contributions by the international community. What I have noticed is that the unintended consequences of a lot of the efforts, be it in terms of um, economic uh, peace building, 
uh, political aid, whatever the efforts were, had the unintended consequence of separating and, and furthering the gap and, and breaking the social contract um, between the state and the society and between the leaders and the people of South Sudan, because it has resulted in a situation of one where service delivery was relegated to the responsibility of the international community. Yeah. Um, and there is some really interesting research that has been done by, by other scholars, which point out that uh, the the term hakuma, which is the term for government amongst many South Sudanese, is used to refer to the government, the SPLMA, and the international community. So, so mm -hmm. there's a situation where the international community um, has interrupted that social contract in a way, uh, also where um, leaders are in some ways more accountable to the international community than they are to their own people. Uh, and this is something we see in the peace agreements that are that often come about through external pressure, uh, but then there's no accountability um, after that, and there's there's little engagement with the people of the community. And again, this is something that goes back in history. We see it in the independence process where there was no ideology built uh, yes. with the people um, of South Sudan about what is our vision. We all want independence, but what is the vision of an independent South Sudan? You know, if I can compare it again with South Africa, where the ANC Freedom Charter was developed through extensive consultations with the people um, in South Sudan, the SPLMA's original ideology was developed primarily because of its alliance um, with Ethiopia. Um, so therefore taking, and, and it's uh, the, the global circumstances at the time with the Cold War. So therefore taking a more, um, socialist approach. So that, I think, is the primary challenge we see um, with all good intentions and sometimes not so good intentions of the international community. The outcome is that that social contract is being eroded uh, because of the, the international influence. Yeah, so there, there was ill-preparedness among uh, South Sudanese leaders. Isn't that the case? Absolutely, absolutely. I think I'm not even sure if I would term it ill-preparedness as um, non-prioritization yes. of, of, yes. of the South Sudanese uh, yes. society of how to build that independent state. The prioritization was on the political configuration. Yeah, because you did mention uh, that the uh, international community is cutting some of its links, but like the World Food Program stopped its... Uh, school feeding uh, programs in certain parts of the country and children are not going to school because that's where they, they, they will guaranteed a square meal so how will that affect education and uh, uh, young people in general that they, they depend on world food program so what does what can the government do to change this dependency on the wfp uh, feeding children well what can the government do uh it will have to do a lot. It is it is working currently with a very limited amount of resources because much of that oil wealth um, has unfortunately uh, not fallen, gone to, to, to these types of initiatives in terms of uh, service delivery and social service. Um, I think it will have a negative impact uh, along with the broader issues that South Sudan is facing. I mean, it's a society that does not have health 
infrastructure, education mm. infrastructure, um, and, and any little bit that is is taken away, I think will most certainly have a negative impact. Um, at the same time, continuing to try and provide service delivery, delivery through humanitarian aid uh, is unsustainable in the long run. Uh, th yeah. There needs to be a drastic reconfiguration of, of, of the situation for that to change because that is not a long-term solution. Yeah, but is the country actually harnessing its oil well? Because I think it's, it's got more oil now than uh, North Sudan. I mean, it, mm -hmm. is it making any use of that oil wealth? Uh, no, unfortunately, um, in in the manner that I would think would serve South Sudanese as, as a nation, a lot of that oil wealth, there has obviously been reports that a lot of that oil wealth um, has been lost due to the war, um, has mm -hmm. been plundered. Um, and and this, this feeds into what I was talking about in terms of reward power, in terms of the way leaders gain legitimacy is by offering rewards. And one of the way those rewards were offered was by um, granting positions um, that gave people access to the states and access to the oil wealth. Um, corruption is obviously a major issue. So the oil wealth is being used to co-opt um, agitators or opposition to yeah. the government. Um, it, it's not going where it should be going. And most of that corrupt money goes to Kenya, isn't it? They've got uh, South, Sudanese leaders, South Sudanese leaders have got property there and uh, a lot of investment. Absolutely, Kenya. absolutely. But what I mean, is the Kenyan government mm -hmm. doing about this? Uh, as, not, nothing that I am aware of. <laughs> um, I speak <laughs> under correction, but nothing that I am uh, aware of. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so, so how does one counter that? I mean, uh, corruption, buying property in uh, Kenya mm -hmm. and uh, neglecting the people, like you said, no food, no housing, no, no proper health care system. How will they be able to overcome that problem? So unfortunately, the predominant way I saw when I was in South Sudan that this problem was being overcome by those who are able was to leave, um, yes. was to leave South Sudan, which is, which is unfortunate. Um, because you know for 50 years you fight for a nation and then you are unable to survive in that nation yes exactly but um in terms of how what the way forward is i think there needs to be a drastic reconfiguration of the relationship between leaders and the people um, how that comes about i don't know but the the most important thing for me is that that needs to come from the people. It cannot come from external actors trying to hold these leaders accountable for corruption. Um, yes. it, it cannot come from external actors trying to force them into peace agreements. I, I think it needs to come from the people. Of course, that is a very difficult thing to do in a state that is currently, um, you know, uh, imprisoning people who criticize the government. Yes. Uh, so it is unfortunate. It's 
it's it's a catch twenty two situation. So, uh, what 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 South Sudan's uh, relationship with the North? So, interestingly enough, um, once the civil there were tensions immediately after independence. Uh, once the the civil war broke out, um, you know, attention shifted and priority shifted, um, and of course now with the the changes in Sudan, I think um, really at the moment that that relationship is in flux. Uh, we have seen. Uh, the North playing a, a different role in terms of uh, trying to broker peace in South Sudan. Mm. Um, but, you know, obviously at the same time, South Sudan, I think, will always be of geopolitical interest uh, to uh, the Sudanese government. But it's also considering the, the internal challenges in Sudan. I think both countries at the moment are very focused on their internal challenges. Um, it remains to be seen how the relationship will evolve in the future. And what about the future leadership of uh, South Sudan? Salva Kiir won't be there forever. Greg Mashar won't be there forever. How, are the, how has it been played out, uh, shaping up for the future leadership of South mm -hmm. Sudan? Um, so at the moment, the battle is still very much between Salvakir and Rick Mashar. Um, but obviously, wh whenever we try to analyze the conflict in South Sudan, and we tend to focus on those two big personalities, we forget that a lot of people, a lot of the people pulling the strings are not those two personalities. Yeah. A lot of the people who have, who are able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of soldiers are not those two people. Uh, so it's a complex leadership matrix in the country. Um, what will happen when Salva Kiir and Rick Mishar go away? Uh, I, I cannot predict the future. What I will say is that unless that fundamental relationship is changed between how elites gain support and gain legitimacy and engage with their society, I suspect it will be very much more of the same, even if those two personalities change. On, on the whole, how, how was your research? I mean, was it quite an interesting exercise? I mean, did you find some uh, exciting things about leadership and governance in Africa generally? Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think it was a, a really, really good exercise. I think um, in a variety of ways, one, the field research going to South Sudan, often as academics, we talk about these very abstract things um, and going and hearing the daily stories, seeing the day-to-day -day, things that don't make it into the book. But I think... Um, show to me the researcher um, what what is what it is I am actually writing about um, seeing the trauma that that 50 years of war well more than 50 years of war has caused I think was absolutely very very valuable and a reminder to me as an academic and I think to all academics that the things we write about are real um, have very real consequences in terms of um, the broader research and ideas that have developed in terms of its link to the African context, the African governance, I think it has reiterated for me um, the challenges we face on the continent in terms of statehood and nationhood, yes. and that these ongoing conversations and debates and, and uh, agitations about what it means to be a citizen of a country, um, what the responsibility of that state is to you as a citizen and what your responsibility as a, as a citizen is to that state. Um, it is really the source of a lot of conflict and violence um, across the continent. Obviously, I cannot generalize. Uh, yes. so, so I think for me, it's just reaffirmed um, the idea that those conversations about nationhood and statehood on the continent are ongoing. 
important. But in fact, communication is very, very important in politics and also in governance that leaders should always communicate effectively with the uh, citizens so that you can get the required results. How was uh, communication between the government and South Sudanese like? Was it effective? I, mean, um, I think it was, it was effective if you were to categorize effective as being able to achieve um, the needs of the leaders, being able to achieve the, the goals that the leaders oh, were the, going the, for. Yes. <laughs> uh, um, a, a good example is, um, you know, when the when the conflict broke out in 2013 um, and uh, Salva Kiir um, made his address in full military uniform, you know, it's, it's a signal that things have changed and it had, I, I believe, the effect he wanted it to. Um, John Garong was also incredibly effective at communicating with people, um, communicating with them um, using their own language um, and their own uh, cultural tropes. Um, you know, he, he was known for being an excellent public speaker. Uh, so in terms of being able to communicate to, to mobilize um, when leaders needed it to, I think, I think they were certainly able to do that. In terms of being able to communicate um, when it came to trying to enhance social cohesion, um, to trying to rebuild, uh, I, I think I think that they were less effective at, but also that they made less effort to do that um, when to 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 communicate as effectively when it came to issues of ensuring that there is social cohesion and nation building in the society post independence. Yeah, that's and, and uh, what's the mood really of ordinary South Sudanese, are they confident that things will change for the better in their society? I'm sure you spoke to quite a few of them. Yeah, um, so unfortunately I was there in 2017, so that was shortly after the first peace agreement had fallen apart. So yeah. at that time, um, the mood was quite resigned. Um, quite a few of my respondents were very much talking about this idea that we are uh, we're leaving. We're leaving the country. Those of us who can, we're, we're looking for our future elsewhere. Mm. Um, in the current situation, I have not spoken to to South Sudanese in South Sudan uh, since the the 2018 agreement. So things may have changed. I have not seen indications that they have drastically changed. I have seen rather indications that people are still quite skeptical of this peace process in terms of where it will lead. So, I mean, what message do you have to other groups in Africa that are trying to secede, like in Cameroon, in Nigeria, mm -hmm. and a few other countries? I mean, it's, it's easier said than done. Having, having an independent state is not as easy as they think, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think the message I would say is that if, if you want to secede, um, have a plan for what comes after. And that plan needs to be made in conjunction with the people who are wanting to secede because the purpose of seceding is self-determination yeah. to, to, to make a plan for your own destiny. Um, but if the people who are leading the secession process are not making that plan with the people who then have to live that destiny, yes. then I, I think you will likely find yourself struggling after that, that secession. Dr. Sonia Teron, uh, lecturer at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, and author of Leadership, Nation Building, and War in South Sudan, published by Bloomsbury in association with the African Leadership Center. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on these and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.